Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, focused compounding, sitting next to Jeffrey Gannon. Jeff, how are we doing? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going just peachy, Jeff. Okay. Just peachy. We hope it's going just peachy for everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in, make sure you hit that subscribe button, both on podcast and the YouTube side of things. Check out my Twitter at Focus Compound and go to focuscompound.com to get access to write-ups. Uh, that Jeff um, writes up for Focus Compounding. So in today's podcast, what we're doing once a week, more of a free form, talk okay. a little bit more about what's going on, stuff we're seeing, uh-huh. as well as answering questions from listeners. So to be able to do that, you could either DM them to me at Focus Compound on Twitter, or you can email them to me, Andrew at FocusedCompounding.com. So what's going on right now in the market? I think I really want to title this, uh, which I, it's probably bad SEO, but like, what the hell is going on? There's a lot of weird stuff going on right now with Viacom last uh-huh. week being down like 30% in a day. We don't need to name names, but Viacom has been on a tear right. the past, you know, I mean, since really t- 2021. I asked somebody, mm-hmm. I asked somebody, somebody just put an envelope under our door. I asked somebody, um, I'm like, what's going on in Viacom lately? Because if you looked at the chart, right. it was just straight up. Yeah. And he was like, and he was a shareholder. I think he was like, I literally have no idea. Um, but then Friday, Viacom, as well as a few other Discovery Inc., uh, I think, uh, and also some Chinese internet companies were down massively. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like there's a huge margin call going on in the market right now. Okay. Um, by a $10 billion family office that use swaps use a few different things and there right. it's rumored it's very net, it's got to be a lot more they're assets. talking 50 yeah. to 60 billion yeah 10 billion yeah mm-hmm. and i went on a little bit of a rant about this in the car on the way here we we're talking about it and first of all i said if you have a 10 billion dollar net worth right. and you're just running the gun like that that much i mean i use different words but I'll just say you're kind of a jerk. I mean, it's just like, uh-huh. what was your lifestyle going to change if you have $10 billion or you have $100 billion? Absolutely not. So, I mean, just like crazy. So, I mean, I hate seeing everything that's going on, but it's just insane. Um, and now there's banks coming out, Credit Suisse. Investment banks, yeah. yeah. Investment banks, yeah, yeah, saying that they may have exposure to this that could materially affect the earnings of mm-hmm. the companies coming up. Um. Yeah, there's a lot of banks warning of significant losses as they try to unwind this position that they have with a family office. And again, we're bringing it back to leverage. And we talked a little bit about this with the Occam's Razor podcast. Okay. How sometimes when there's different booms and manias going on in the market, people look at Buffett and Munger and say, oh, they're just the old guys sitting there. What do they know? They're not new. They don't they're not still learning they're not uh-huh. in their prime and a lot of the advice they give is timeless munger says three things could kill you in life drugs alcohol leverage right and to stay away from it mm-hmm. and again all we're trying to do here we talked about in the last podcast is over a you know a bunch of different outcomes you want to skew your odds to being on the favorable side of things so it's staying away from things that may work once may work twice may work five times but the sixth, seventh, or eighth time that it doesn't work, you blow up in a very big way, you know? So, yeah, uh, there's a 
this is total speculation because we don't know yet, but it sounds like the notional exposure. I mean, some people even say 80, 80 billion. And oh. you saw a massive margin call wow. of banks, you know, trying to bring in that capital. And it was punishing a lot of uh, a lot of different stocks. And you've been hearing there's been a lot more people talking about this with like ETFs, like super high growth ETFs. You don't need new okay. names, but anyone that listening probably knows who we're talking about, how uh -huh. eventually it could cause an issue for them, illiquidity. And it could, uh, you know, blow up a few different uh companies which could present a i guess interesting opportunity so it's like a, a viacom for example being down 30 percent in one oh, day oh you could mean because you have to unwind yes yeah yeah Correct. okay forced liquidation yeah yeah um so i don't know i mean do you have any thoughts on everything that's going on in the market right now um well yeah this is some this is interesting because it's similar to some other ones uh this some of the stocks specifically i don't know all of them but viacom and discovery were interesting because they reminded me of the um you know things like gamestop and amc and all that where they were actually interesting value investments not that long ago and then they started going crazy and attracting a lot of attention and all that um so uh no i did know that crazy stuff was happening when the price of those um particular stocks because i looked at those i mean i do know uh viacom and discovery pretty well that's it yep that's probably smart uh <laughs> smart opinion no it's just it's just the whole thing of leverage right we don't use leverage um you don't use leverage now you've done certain things with leverage before right like if you ever like did like a, a short or something well, along if you're those short lines. then you have using leverage but i mean we are talking about a couple percent of a portfolio when you're doing that versus um uh versus many times the size of the business why do people do that i don't know the details of this one i mean why you do it with something like long-term capital management or, or those sorts of things is that you have to take advantage of a very small spread that is very certain and so then you have to use a large amount of leverage. I mean, you can see that with um, banks, right? So what the net interest margin of a bank might be 3% or something. Mm -hmm. So without using, um, even if you had no expenses, no non-interest expenses running the bank, well, to get a decent return, you have to use uh, about four times leverage um, uh, just to do that. And then you have other expenses and things. You need more leverage than that. So that would be why you do it. Um, it also, in a sense, is why... The spread can be that small. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, so the spreads have to be very wide on things if no one can use leverage. I mean, you could imagine um, making markets, things like that. If no one's leveraged who's dealing in a stock, then the bid-ask spreads can be very wide. Uh, if, if you intend to make tons of money, you know, on a ton of different, uh, on a lot of transactions at a very low amount, uh, a very low spread, then you're using a lot of leverage, which you intend to use for a short period of time you know and we i mean the issue with a lot of stuff for the financial system for leverage things is the that it tends to be that stability creates instability so if the perception of the world and everything is that things are unstable if people are unwilling to lend and all that then people don't engage in behavior that's destabilizing basically because it doesn't get financed. But if you do have a lot of stability, um, then you're given a lot longer leash to do things that might create instability eventually. So ironically, if you keep 
rates at the same levels all the time if stock prices tend to be uh, at the same level or rising without a lot of down uh, declines or whatever asset you're dealing in if people are kind of willing to finance things if you have a really good credit rating you know i mean ge and aig and stuff could never get in as much trouble if they didn't have such a good rating in the first place um then you can do a lot of things that end up being destabilizing right Mm -hmm. i'm just curious you know how do you stay away how do you have a successful career where it's like you don't end up in the newspaper with one of these stories well you could just not use leverage at all Mm -hmm. i mean you can get plenty good returns in stocks by not using leverage do you Um, think it should be regulated more I don't know, because I'm not sure how much danger this poses to the system. Um, you know, it's just so it's things. like Credit Suisse came out and said, oh, it may have some effect. There's a couple other banks, too. And I was like, wow, this is totally reminding me of when I'm reading in these books, like 2008. They're like, oh, right. we could have some effect. And it's like, then they just throw the freaking kitchen sink at it. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe you could regulate the banks and their behavior towards it, but it's a lot of. Who's at fault? The prime banker that allowed them this? Oh. type of leverage or you know oh, you know are they at fault for doing this yeah um or prime broker uh yeah i i don't know i mean yes i mean you're talking about running money for other people and losing a lot of it by having a lot of leverage that's a pretty big problem but yeah are the banks also responsible yes and we're not gonna get into all of this situation but there's stuff here that probably should have um made you not take certain risks i mean if you were i don't know if you remember but um charlie munger's mentioned before about solomon and them getting involved in a couple different deals Mm -hmm. and what was known about some of the people in the deals they did and they still wanted to do them if it's enough money you know um this wasn't uh there's some things in the background here that that would have already raised flags so. Oh, yeah, the $44 million insider trading. There, there's just yeah stuff in the background <laughs> that would have... Got it. Yeah. Somebody asked, I'm considering going activist and was wondering why you and Jeff have chosen not to. Does it make sense for you guys to run a public company? From my perspective, it gives you one more way of increasing returns by buying back when shares are cheap and issuing when expensive. For instance, the net asset value, the NAV, could be 100 and the stock trades at 80, so you could buy your already cheap portfolio at a significant discount to its market value. So any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's true. It gives you more options that way, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. If you read a lot of activist situations, it I feel like it always looks a lot more like a slam dunk from the outside, and then you get on the inside, and it's very, from what I've spoken to people about, it's much tougher. It usually always ends up being much tougher than they thought it would be which is like business in general yeah very tough we deal in smaller stocks my biggest concern with when people take over smaller stocks and and do proxy fights and all that is um that they tend to remove the actual operating managers involved in it Uh, if it was a situation where there was a change in the board or something um without a change in who the general manager was who the people running plants were and things like that then i wouldn't have the same um concerns but that tends to be what it is. I think people underestimate the operational difficulties of a business that way. Um, but I don't have anything against activism. Yeah. And we sometimes own meaningful amounts of stock in companies. And, um, you know, I mean, 
I do, I guess, have some stuff against activism in the sense of buying a fairly small stake, making a very public announcement, not ever being in a position which you could change things at the company and stuff like that. I think we would tend to be fairly not public versus the amount of influence we could have on a company versus the opposite way. You know, I don't like the buying a couple percent of a company and making a big announcement kind of thing when someone else owns 10 times more than you do. And so there's not much you can change, you know, mm -hmm. that creates a, uh, it creates a fervor around the stock, gets attention to the stock and stuff, but that's not quite activism. I don't know how, how this is the right word for it, but it's not really activism in the sense that you're ever going to want a proxy fight or something. It's like, they're just looking for the pop. Yeah. It's you really get a like bunch of presentation on the stock is getting attention for yeah. it. Yeah. I don't like that as much. But activism that changes things at the company, I don't have a problem with that. So it's really getting back to, again, like, you know, buying the business as opposed to making a trade. Yeah. And the other thing is, um, other things equal, we prefer to buy into a situation where we like management, like what they're doing. It's really hard to change that in a way that would be as beneficial. So it is true you can do some things to, like, buy into a situation that's really cheap. You don't like management. You could do some stuff to kind of mitigate that a little bit, but you're probably still not going to end up in a situation where you really love what you're going to get. It's much easier to find a management that you like and is already in place mm -hmm. than to somehow find them and put them in there. You it's know, better be a team player. Yeah. Um, but of course, sometimes you end up in activism over time, and that's very reasonable. That wasn't your intent going into it, but things happen and whatever, mm. you know. So that's always the case if you own a meaningful amount of stock that things could happen. Sure. If you want to read a pretty cool story on an activist getting involved with a company, read Railroader about Hunter Harrison and when Pershing was getting involved with Canadian Pacific and what that process was like and the proxy fight and fighting with the board and screaming and all that sort of fun stuff. It's a great book. Yeah, I once they wrote, went into it. I once wrote a letter to a board. Uh, I did do it one time. No, uh, you've written a two. Yeah, you've written another one other than that one that you're talking about. Uh, I don't think officially I have. We have. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, as an individual investor, I one time wrote a letter to a, a board. Um, but, did they you know, respond? That was a very specific, no, that was a very specific um, issue with uh, a buyout offer or something. So it was very not operational. Um, I, I don't think I really want to get involved in things changing how a company operates and stuff like that. But if you mean um, like saying a company shouldn't take this buyout offer or here's things to consider about a different way of structuring the deal or whatever, that's different. I would I would definitely consider that if it's purely a matter of some capital allocation things or especially a thing about a buyout and how it should be structured and things like that. Yeah. Somebody asked... Can you guys discuss if you subtract out the stock-based compensation cash flow line item when calculating free cash flow? If not, why not? Um, no, I don't take it out. I estimate how much the dilution is going to be over time. And then I use that as a drag on my total return. So this is confusing to people. But So if I say that something's trading at like, 12 times free cash flow or something. And it's really not because it has stock compensation. How I really figure it out is I always calculate how much of a return I think I'm going to get in a stock over time. And I subtract out how much I think that dilution will be. Uh, so there are companies where I think dilution will be like 2% a year. Mm -hmm. And that's a permanent drag on my returns. 
So over 15 years or something, that's equivalent to a very big difference in free cash flow. But it, I do do the estimate based on um, uh, my my expectations for long-term dilution and not what it is in any one year. I think that the stock compensation in one year is not very um, is not a very good measure of what it'll be over time because they're so different how different companies do it. Um, you know, so I, I pay more attention to like whether a company would, um, because some companies will reprice options, issue a lot more to people and stuff in a downturn for them, uh, things like that. So you could see where they do a lot of diluting. I use much longer term things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like the opposite of if you're doing like a, adding like the dividend yield to right. your return. It's a negative dividend doing the opposite yield. of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Here's something that we talk about a lot. How do you think about allocating time to getting familiar with great companies that are obviously overvalued? Yeah. He says, I'm wondering if you're spending time to prepare for market corrections slash crashes, like in March of 2020, when great companies can be bought at bargains. So it's, and you've talked about this too, right? How it's challenging sometimes when you are reading an annual report or a 10K and you know 100% you're not going to buy it today right. or, or, or soon. Mm -hmm. It's hard to do. Yeah. You, you, I mean, your brain has a finite amount of you know horsepower. Yeah. And how you allocate your time, this idea of focus is so crucial to being successful, especially in investing. One man, op, uh, one man you know, investment <laughs> team. Yeah. And being independent like that. Yeah, I, I think it's probably a good use of time, probably, if you can't come up with a lot of other things. Um, I mean, it, it's a good use of time even then, if you have enough of it. Now, some people talking to us are, aren't going to be reading a lot of 10Ks. But if you are, you know, having half your time spent on things that are too expensive, but you might be interested in the business a lot, is fine. That's not a problem. Um, there is one danger, though, that I've noticed with people, which is if you spend a lot of time thinking about that, uh, business that you can't have now because it's too expensive. Sometimes it does create a sense of like scarcity and stuff when it does come down in price so that you may be overly aggressive buying it and not revisiting what's going on with it and all of that because you're like, this is my big chance to finally buy this company that I know. Mm -hmm. um, so I have seen that happen with people actually that they, I've followed this company forever and now it dropped a lot and now I'm going to buy. Um, you know, that that has happened. So I would be a little cautious about that. Somebody was asking about Fairfax Financial. Yeah. I don't have strong opinions about Fairfax Financial. Yeah, he said it being the cheapest it has been in decades. Why do you both feel it's not getting much love? Um it's a good question. I don't know the answer to it. I haven't read an annual report of it recently, so I would have to check that. Um I think, I, th I think Berkshire is fairly cheap compared to what it's been before. And actually, there are a few other insurance companies that are fairly cheap. Um, Fairfax is also somewhat value investing uh, in terms of its approach to portfolio stuff, especially kind of, I guess you could say, deeper value and stuff than Berkshire. And Fairfax is more of a straight-up insurer. Um, yeah. Let's see. Uh... We get asked this a lot. Okay. Um, again, maybe it's part of the times we're living in. If I could find it, I just scroll past it. You and Jeff talk about intrinsic value before and talked a bit about companies that grow a lot. It would be interesting with an episode to hear 
about high growth companies, those that technically deserve an infinite EV to free cash flow, and how you would sift through that. I would say it's hard to come by. Infinite is a pretty big word. Um Yeah, well, I mean, they could lack free cash flow now and be worth more in the future. I think we had a write-up on our website at one time of box. Um, which is the kind of thing that if it eventually uh, grew fast enough and developed into a more profitable business along the lines of the economics, what seemed the economics might be of the business, then it would be could be worth a lot despite the lack of profits at the moment. Um, I think, let's see, um, there's certain other companies like that that have to they have fairly high um retention rates and theoretically would have nearly um pure profit. I mean it would have to be something with a very high gross margin, but of course it can even appear that the gross margin isn't that high in the very early years for a truly like new technology type thing, you know. Um but usually you would need very high gross margins. When I complain that some company is overpriced, you'll notice that usually it's not a company with a very high gross margin. Sometimes it is. But it, to be extraordinarily clearly overpriced, you probably need to be priced pretty high versus gross profits, which is a number I would use, price to gross profits. And then your, your gross margin has to be reasonably low. So that is why I complain about something like Tesla. Um, it's not an industry that has high gross margins. The company doesn't have high gross margins. So even though the price to sales might seem like something that's paid normally for super high growth stocks, um, it, it can be a little more extreme. You know, a good example of something I would avo avoid um, valuing that way would be like Chewy, right? So Chewy is a very fast-growing company, has a lot of potential to grow really fast in the future, but you have to understand that it's priced at an extremely high level versus the level of gross profits in the industry because um, pet food has very low gross uh, margins, which is very different from like a software company. So I would value like a software company or something like that a lot higher than I would a car company or a dog food company. Yeah. Yeah. Elon Musk, his uh, new title is techno king of Tesla. Yes. Yeah. Were you surprised to hear that they bought a bunch of Bitcoin? Hmm. Not really. Yeah. No. Um, I don't know. You know, not exactly. I mean, they, they do some stuff to get some publicity. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know. I think he understands how to attract Work attention. the system. Yeah. yeah. I don't know that was a huge amount, right? Versus how much their market cap is and stuff. Yeah. It was like a billion. Yeah. And their market cap's whatever it is. <sighs> Hundreds of billions. Yeah. It, it, a lot of companies do things where they say... Uh, they're now accepting Bitcoin or something and get mm. some press from it. It's, it's interesting uh, why they do it, but I think that there's an awareness of the news that they get from it, mm. and that's a big part of it, I would say. And I don't think it will make or break them if they happen to lose a billion dollars or something from a transaction on that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so what's talk to everybody what's been going on with jeff gannon what's new what what are some uh any interesting companies you've come across recently that you're either going to write up or that you think is worthy to talk about uh no people are very interested in, in you know the process towards things anything new that you've implemented or that you think has worked for you and may work for others uh 
I would say no to that. No, I haven't had a lot of new things that I found recently. I did mention um, that uh, a stock we get asked about all the time that I did not write up, Cambria Automobiles. Um, yeah, that was an interesting story. Yeah, that management there was management buyout offer for that. Yeah. Yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Um, <laughs> Should Virtu go and so make a big acquisition well but how would you because management wants to buy it out uh-huh. and management owns 40 percent plus it's the it's the all of the top management people involved in it so it, it's a fairly low valuation on, on a price to tangible buck it's high but they do um luxury cars super luxury type things so um it's fairly low on like an evd EBITDA. i don't know depending on last year's EBITDA, it might not look that bad it's a shocker but it might be four or five times peak EBITDA. it'll mm-hmm. be a low number Number. so um to take a company private at that price is pretty uh it's a pretty low price mm-hmm. right um but it's a management buyout so you might not get better than that and it tends to be the case in the uk that you don't do as well as in the u.s because of the way that their um system works uh this kicks in some stuff with the takeover code and stuff like that so when they try to make a buyout it then brings in certain rules about who can do what over a period of time um however it is interesting that they wanted to buy the whole company uh, at the price that they did so quickly after you know the pandemic uh it would be fairly easy for them to do it i think because they own about 40 percent of the company which means you only need the other 60 percent. and given the price to ebitda i just mentioned you could probably borrow it from somewhere mm-hmm. so you basically can do it without putting in equity i mean you already own 40 percent of the company but taking out the other 60 percent. so i saw some shareholders were revolting on message boards yeah well just I, acknowledging it I, and it's true. I mentioned that i made a lot of money in a deal like that management made a buyout offer i thought the buyout offer was too low bought as much stock as i could eventually they offered more mm-hmm. but that was in the u.s not the uk yeah i guess you don't start high as the highest you could possibly go when you're gonna want to buy out a company like a management buyout i guess yeah um and like i said then there are there are rules in the uk if they continue to go forward with it there's a date that they would have to decide if they want to continue to go forward with it or not once they do they're bound by certain things it's a whole different dance than in the u.s did it shock you that hunter douglas no did a very similar situation shock me yeah i mean whenever you've talked about the company kind of a take under was kind of a risk that we always always talk about that possibility yeah so hunter douglas the family in the last uh, decade or so had uh, yeah about a decade last decade or so of its life um maybe a little bit more than that as a public company um had bought back from the point of about 50 percent to like almost 90 percent or something the company and then took it private uh and you know they had it in a jurisdiction where that was likely to work out better um not that you couldn't do it in the u.s but it would be harder i, I mean i think you get a higher price in the u.s mm-hmm. but that's more because of the way the board works and stuff i'd say so we talked a little bit about uh, Progressive on a different podcast, but somebody said that I like the company very much. They have an excellent management, but I always find it hard to forecast earnings in insurance companies. Right. So he was wondering um, if we could help him get a better idea of how to actually value insurance companies and what are the key metrics to include when calculating intrinsic value. So with Progressive, the way I broke it down is long-term average. What do I think their uh, underwriting margin will be? Applying that and then putting a valuation on that and then putting a value on the um, investment uh, portfolio completely separately. 
So in other words, you do a calculation like you say, let's say premiums are, you know, whatever number they are. Uh, and you say, okay, let's take, uh, you want to look at PGR right now so yeah. we can see the premiums? Okay, so this will be earned premiums, I think. So what were they last year? Earned premiums, $39 billion. Okay, so let's say earned premiums are $40 billion, right? And um, you say, okay, they have this target to hit a 96 combined ratio. Do I believe that? Well, you can look at decades of past results to see if you do believe that. And if you say, okay, I think they'll make 5%, so that would be a 95 combined ratio, um, then uh, 5, 5%, then they're going to make you know $500 million for every uh, 10 billion that they write. They're, they're writing 40 billion, so they're going to make 2 billion in, in underwriting profit or something is what you think they're at now as their normalized level. So let's say you took that number. Um, then you put a multiple on that. Like you say, okay, so is that worth 10 times pre-tax uh, income you know does the average company that i or it's a company of this quality or average company whatever you want to say deserve to trade at like 10 times pre-tax maybe it does so then you put 20 billion there and then you do the same thing from the investment side of it right and you add them together because both sides matter um that's the thing you, you get both pieces of it now you can add the investment side by taking the entire portfolio and just valuing at what it's worth however you should be warned that because of the way a lot of insurance companies work and certainly progressive, they're going to get lower returns on average on that portfolio than, than you would like. So your stock portfolio is going to outperform their investment portfolio because they keep a lot of shorter term um, cash type investments. So then you add those two parts together. And then in the case of progressive, you might have debt that you have to take out, but that's how you do it. Mm -hmm. um, I would say those are the two parts that you break down. Um, and you look at the very long-term past, what their underwriting has been, what their combined ratio has been and compare that. So when I say combined ratio, I want you to look at their expense ratio and their loss ratio as two separate things and the combined ratio together, but also then you compare them to other companies in the industry and they have that data at least versus the industry. It's very easy to find. And even in case of progressive, you can find it for specific competitors like Geico and USA probably, but you certainly can always find it for the industry, like, um, comparing them. So are they always a little bit better than the industry? Um, things like that. If the industry is writing at 100 on average for 30 years, are they a few points below that? However, if you're asking, can you predict the next few years? No. I mean, it's cyclical. Mm -hmm. So it really depends. It, it, we, I mean, trying to predict something like that is like trying to predict the stock market or something. Uh, there are things happening that can build momentum for a little while, but people will realize that what they're doing doesn't make as much sense and they'll pull back from it eventually. And then when things get really cheap, then they'll push into it a lot. So it is like a stock market that way. It has that kind of cyclicality because um, profits will attract more competition basically, you know, and, but eventually you'll see prices reverse on anything that, uh, it, good times or bad times will not last for too long in the insurance business. So you do need to look at the very long term and get come up with a cyclically adjusted number. You really don't want to use the last few years of earnings or something. If you hear us say like the P of this stock or whatever, if we say of some brand business, right? So if you said Hershey or something, it doesn't really matter. I mean, maybe it matters in a COVID year, but it doesn't matter in any other year. Um, but for an insurance company, don't just use the last year's PE because there'll be some years where the combined ratio is really good and some years where it's really bad and it's purely cyclical. You want the long-term average. Got it. Speaking of Hershey,
I came across this two weeks ago. Okay. It always shocked me that Buffett didn't purchase this company. Because he's talked about it. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. That ever shock you? Seems like it would be right in his wheelhouse. Well, it hasn't really been available for sale. Yeah. The entire company because of the uh, trust. Trust, yeah. Yeah. And then the price isn't necessarily all that low. A bunch of candy companies, the price isn't all that low. Um I mean, he invested in a way through Mars Wrigley, that one deal that he was able to do that way, but he's always liked Wrigley and Mars. Um, so, it, yeah, it's an area he's wanted to invest in, but you notice he doesn't. Um, there's lots of companies he talks about and doesn't buy into. He would use the Wall Street Journal as an example of a great business many times, but didn't own the stock itself, which is mm-hmm. interesting. So it really depends on the price. And maybe he never got the price that he liked. Just admiring from afar. Yeah, I can't think of a time when Hershey's stock was really cheap. I could be forgetting a time in the recent past. I'm always amazed at how expensive Tootsie Roll was. Yeah, mm, yeah that's so, another one. Yeah. Now, I think that maybe also that people per- always thought, well, it's a possible takeover candidate, which is true, you know, given its size and everything. But it always traded at a very high uh, sort of multiple, very blue chip kind of multiple. Mm. Yeah, which isn't necessarily wrong. I mean, it's very safe stock. Um Revenue's gone nowhere over the past 10 years. Yeah. 10-year CAGR on revenue, negative 1%. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I mean, you, they're businesses in which you have almost no growth, so it's hard to pay a really high price. Sure. Now, there's a lot yeah. of safety, but... 35 times free cash flow. Yeah. It can be hard that way. So I've, I've always avoided ones like that. We've talked about food companies and why I don't like them as much as just the price. I mean, it, it's okay to pay that high price if you have really good returns on equity and fast and some real growth. But if you have basically no growth, I don't think you ever want to pay a high multiple for something because you can't... I mean, maybe if you had amazing capital allocation by someone like a Buffett or something. But absent that, you're not going to be able to reallocate capital at better than average returns. So why would you want to pay a high multiple versus the earnings you're getting? So like if you need a 10% return in a stock... And you're paying more than ten times free cash flow, because you're saying, well, her, well, Hershey's or or um, Tootsie Roll or something is a great business. That's true if that business grows like at all. Mm-hmm. But if it doesn't grow at all, then you're not really reinvesting that cash flow back in the business. It's just cash. So what does it matter what company it's coming from? Now you could say, well, it's the safety of it, and I agree with that. The risk is very low. But how big is the safety difference in a government bond versus a junk bond? You can measure that. It's not a huge um, percentage difference, right? So it shouldn't, you don't really want to pay, I think, three or four times more yeah. for a business. I mean, in terms of the yield difference, that's huge. We're talking about you're getting a yield of 3% free cash flow yield or something instead of 10% in some other stock that you could find that's that's uh, riskier. It's a very big spread, you know? Yeah. Interesting. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the Bolt the Bus. If you want to email me your questions or DM me your questions and we will talk about them throughout the show just like we did here today. It could be basically about anything, whether it's from you know just uh, uh, the process or individual accounting questions or just questions about business in general. Uh, we want to talk about what's on everybody's mind. So DM them to me or you can email me, andrew at focusedcompounding.com. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in to both the bus. Leave us a five-star rating. That goes a very long way. You know that puts a smile on my face. We appreciate all the support, and we will see you in the next podcast.